Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to part two of episode number 147 of my sexy music podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. First of all, I'd like to welcome all you to part two of episode number 147 of my 6G music podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I am Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, either on the Apple Podcast app, or in Stitcher, or in iHeartRadio, or in Google Play Music, or on Spotify, and you're wondering, so what the heck is, I'm just going to give you a brief description of what this show is all about. Okay, so I'm Sam Williams, and I'm a 25-year-old songwriter slash producer, but I'm also a huge 60 music fan slash expert slash nerd. And each week with this podcast, I take one song by one artist in the 60s and split the show in two parts. First part of the show, I talk about my opinion of the song and why I think it's so good, or why I think it sucks, and then do, do my own personality on the range of the song, with swimming cool the chords, playing lyrics. And the second part of the show, I dig deep into the history behind that track. In that part of the show, I talk about who wrote the song, who produced it, who are the studio musicians of the track, or be the session musicians of the band members themselves, and the history behind the songwriters who wrote the song, the producers that produced it, and the record label the song was released on, where that label was located at, and the studio of the song was recorded at, where that studio was located at, and the peak music song made up originally made up originally in Billboard Hot 100 charts where it first came out, and year and month the song was released. All that is in the second part of the show. Now, before you on this week's episode of this podcast, uh, tonight... I am performing, actually, in L.A. I'm doing a gig at Bar Lubitsch. It's in West Hollywood, and I'm on 930. There's a $10 cover. Now, if you listen to this podcast and you want to uh, see me perform live, I would love it if I could, if you can come to my show. Um, I, 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 I can under, but I can totally get it if you don't want to go because of what's happening now with COVID. I mean, cases are on the rise now, and this new variant is spreading, and a lot of people aren't getting vaccinated, so it's kind of dangerous right now. Um, even though things are getting back to normal, it feels like you know this thing is still here, unfortunately. So I totally understand if you if you don't want to go because of the virus, but um, if you're vaccinated and you feel like you can take the risk and you don't and, you don't, and you're not too worried about getting sick, please come out and support me. I really appreciate it if you can do that. Because what you're going to hear is not just songs off my last record that you can f- always find in the description of this episode of this podcast. A link to that is always going to be there. But you're also going to f- hear some r- unreleased songs. Now, these songs you're not going to find anywhere online. You're not going to find these songs in, in the links in the description of this episode of this podcast. These are songs I'm producing right now that I have no idea when I'm going to release them. So it's going to be really cool because you're going to get to hear brand new songs from me that... Nobody, no, for the most part, nobody's heard these songs except for some, some of my really close friends. Some of my really close friends have heard these songs, but for the most part, nobody's heard these songs. So you're going to hear these songs for the very first time. I'm very, very excited to play them for you live. Uh, there's three of them, so um, the rest are songs off my record. So I'm very, very excited to play these songs for you guys. So um, if you're in LA and you're not afraid of COVID and you want to come see me live, please come and do that. Please do that. I would really appreciate the support. Um, there's a ten dollar cover. My sets my set time is nine thirty, so just want to put that out there for anybody who's interested in going who listens to my podcast and let's get moving with this week's show. Moving on, let's talk about the history behind last week's artist and song, which is Aaron Neville's Tell It Like It Is. Now, this 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 podcast might be a little bit long because 
I'm actually with this with this particular artist and this particular song, I've I've reached kind of a milestone on my podcast. Not necessarily within number within the number of episodes I've put out, but specifically with the fact that with this with this particular song and artist, it marks a very specific city, um, you know, in the south that I haven't talked about on my podcast yet. Because I've covered so many different cities from the South. I've covered Muscle Shoals. I've covered Memphis. I've covered Nashville. I mean, I've covered so many different cities, you know, from the Southern area. I've even done Texas. So uh, this is the very first, um, you know, artist and song I'm talking about from this very specific city that I haven't talked about yet. So there's a lot to unpack here. So it might be a little bit long. So. Um, you know, just wanted to give you a heads up, but I have a lot to talk about here because this is the very first uh, artist and song that, that I'm covering this week on my podcast from a city that I haven't talked about yet, and that city is New Orleans, Louisiana. Yeah, this is the very first artist that I've talked about on my podcast that, you know, is from New Orleans, and this song is recorded in New Orleans, Louisiana, and uh, the city, now granted, the city has a very, very rich musical history, and it goes beyond just rock and roll. I mean, I'm sure most anybody who has at least one iota of musical knowledge or expertise knows that New Orleans was the birthplace of jazz and started out as Dixieland and then it morphed into jazz. And that goes back many, many years before the focus of my podcast. That goes back to like the turn of the century. You know, so uh, the late 20s, early 30s, I mean, everyone knows, I think most people know by now that New Orleans was the birthplace of jazz. So I'm not going to really dive into that too much in this week's episode of this podcast because uh, this podcast is more focused on rock and roll history. And to be honest with you, uh, New Orleans doesn't really get talked about much as far as cities that were really important to, uh, you know, 60s music history. Now, it gets mentioned all the time when people talk about music from the 50s and the development of rock and roll and the beginning of rock and roll, which was in the mid 50s, um, because New Orleans was one of the very first cities to develop the genre of music out of rhythm and blues and into rock and roll. And, you know, some of the biggest stars, musical stars of the 50s that were really big in rock and roll, which include Little Richard and Fats Domino, they're all recording in New Orleans at the time, and they're all using New Orleans session musicians. So the city was big in the 50s, for sure. And that kind of continued on in the 60s, but it wasn't really the same. And I'll explain to you why in just a few minutes, but... Um, you know, but still, you know, New Orleans was still having having a lot of success, specifically in 1961. In 1962 and 63, it was kind of slowing down, really not much happening. But, uh, you know, there were some years in New Orleans history where things were kind of quiet and not a whole lot of hits. But then it kind of it basically all came back in 1966. And I'll explain to you just just exactly what was happening in that year that made to me that that made had New Orleans make such a huge comeback within popular music but um but in this particular episode I'm going to talk a little bit about sort of the development of New Orleans as far as it becoming a very important city for rock and roll and the history of rock and roll and then dive into more of what happened behind the scenes as far as studio musicians and recording studios in New Orleans in the 60s and how this sort of developed into the song I talked about last week, which is Aaron Neville's Hall Like It Is. So we got a lot to unpack today and let's get to it. So really, as much as New Orleans was there from the very beginning of jazz in the late in the turn of the century with Dixieland, it was also there from the very beginning of rock and roll. 
Because in 1945, there was a guy named Cosmo Matassa. And Cosmo Matassa was a guy who was a young engineer slash producer. And he was someone who was really trying to get into the record business. He opened up a studio in 1945 called J&M Studios. And it was located on 838, 840 Rampart Street. And it became the single-handedly most popular studio in New Orleans uh, for you know anybody that wanted to record there. And it became one of the biggest places for any up-and-coming musician to want to record. And uh, a lot of you know big names in, ro- in the very early stages of rock and roll, even before it was known as rock and roll at the time when it was known as rhythm and blues, a lot of big artists recorded in uh, this particular studio. And it was, it, was, it was just a small little place. But, I mean, just to give you some examples of records of recording there, Go to Rockin' Tonight by Roy Brown, The Fat Man by Fats Domino, Tutti Free by Little Richard. I mean, basically, See You Later, Alligator by Bobby Charles. I mean, it was all these big, big rock and roll records that were just, you know, just coming up just when rock and roll was just a de- in development as a genre of music, kind of coming down to rhythm and blues and jazz. New Orleans was right, at, right in the thick of all that. And he was a guy that basically he, he opened up his own studio in, uh, in, in New Orleans and with the most really basic, you know, equipment, um, you know, he had 28 and two Presto AM recorders. And that's basically what he had to work with. He had to press do old Presto disc recorder. And those are the only sort of things that he had to use as far as. What uh for for what kind of equipment he had access to the studio, but th- with with that basic equipment, he was able he was able to get really basic really good sounds even with just one microphone. And uh, you know it's funny, um, even though there weren't really any labels in New Orleans, uh, certain labels that were that were actually from elsewhere like Imperial, which was based in L.A. They wanted to. Re- they they actually sought out sought out New Orleans as a place where you know a lot of the artists could record, and uh, basically, Imperial Records was one of the very first labels, um, you know that was that was that that jumped onto the New Orleans sound, and a- another another label that was pretty early on as far as you know jumping onto the New Orleans sound, which was not just developed developed by Cosmo Matassa but by a group of studio musicians too. And that label was called Specialty. So Imperial and Specialty put out most of the of the early New Orleans hits in the rock and roll era, starting in 1955, but then a little bit before that in the early 50s too. But that was before it was called rock and roll. And basically, um, you know, during this time, the, the there was a core group of studio musicians, guys that were basically you know, playing on all these records. And really the sound of New Orleans was basically the this tenor the tenor and Barry Sax and the piano. That was the that was the very it was a that was the most important part of the sound of New Orleans was those two instruments. And the guys who performed, you know, all you basically did all those, you know, things I'm talking about, like the Barry Sax and the tenor sax where basically there were there were two guys who were really really important for that Barry Sax and tenor sax sound who played on a lot of these records, and their names were Lee Allen and Alvin Red Tyler, and a guy named Herb Hardsty too. But it was mainly Lee Allen and Har- Alvin Red Tyler, and then of course you had David Bartholomew who is the trumpet player, you know, and who actually actually wrote a lot of hits hit songs with uh, Fats Domino. He was his most you know biggest collaborator, and he produced most of his early hits too. 
And then you had Huey Piano Smith was a piano player. Ernest McLean played guitar. Frank Fields played bass. And Earl Palmer, who will later go on to uh, play on tons and tons of hit records in L.A. with a wrecking crew, uh, started out as a drummer during this particular scene. Um, you know, and it's and it's interesting because these were the guys who played on all the early New Orleans records, everything from Tutti Frutti to Live It Up. I mean, all the all the big hits. I mean, Long Tall Sally. I mean, Blueberry Hill, Blue Monday. I mean, all the big hits that were being recorded in New Orleans in the mid fifties. I hear you knock on my smiling lose. It was all recorded with those studio musicians who basically became like the main guys. Uh, you know, who were playing on all these hits. But what happened was this. So he, so the stu- so J&M Studios was a big studio, but then what happened was that it actually closed down in 1956, and then Cosmo Matassa opened up a brand new studio called, his, which, was, which actually went by under his own name, Cosmo Recording Studios. And Cosmo Recording Studios was... The, the what would become like the main recording studio in New Orleans at the time. And Cosmo Studios was basically the main place where all the major hits that were being recorded in New Orleans were recorded. And it became like a place where independent labels could record like AFO, but then also, you know, you know, major indie labels based in New York like Roulette could also record there. And it became the main sort of hub for a lot of, you know, different music that was coming out of New Orleans. It was all being recorded at Cosmo Recording Studios. And the, the studio musicians sort of shifted at, at this time because uh, there was a couple of guys who were mainstays in New Orleans in the 50s who later went left New Orleans and went to L.A. And those guys were Earl Palmer, the drummer, and Harold Bassey, the, the piano player. So, uh, you know, both those guys, you know, who were major, major, uh, you know, key figures in the New Orleans music scene in the 50s left New Orleans and went to L.A. in the 60s and became major uh, you know, studio musicians there. and uh, But then there was some shift in personnel as far as the major studio musicians. But let's talk about Cosmo Recording Studios for a second now that we're on the subject. So Cosmo Recording Studios was located in, uh, on 521-23 Governor Nichols Street. Actually, 521-23-25. But in that, within that block of Governor Nichols Street was where uh, Cosmo Recording Studios was located at. And it was a, a studio that he opened in the spring of 1956, and it was after he had already established J&M Recording Studios on Rampart. And uh, basically, it was a brand new recording studio that became the epicenter of everything that was happening within the New Orleans music scene. And uh, basically, there were certain producers that became, uh, you know, really, really well known for working out of Cosmo Recording Studios. And uh, these guys included David Bartholomew, Alan Two Saints, and Wardell Quirzigri. And these these were the main guys who basically produced all the major music that was coming out of Cosmo Recording Studios. And uh, Dave Bartholomew obviously produced Fast Domino's early hits for uh, Imperial Records, who at the time head of Imperial Records was Lou Judd. And um, out of out of the uh, the the musicians that became well known uh at in within New Orleans within this whole scene uh there was certain there were certain guys that became very an integral part of the the studio musicians um you know that became you know a part of this whole scene that went down in New Orleans in the late 50s who worked out at Cosmo Recording Studios 
and these included saxophonist Lee Allen and drummer Earl Palmer, who got replaced by Charles Hungry Williams, and other musicians, you know, who will include the scene, included uh, Alvin Red Tyler and Ernest McLean, Edgar Blanchard and Justin Adams playing guitar, Edward Frank uh, playing piano, and Frank Fields was the bass player. Now, over now, this was at the time when, uh, I, like I said, Imperial and Specialty Records, you know, were very big record labels. And by the way, uh, Sonny Bono was actually an intern for Specialty Records in this time, and he actually, um, wrote, you know, wrote some songs for some major New Orleans artists, including a guy who named Larry Williams, who who had a pretty big hit with the song in, in the mid '50s called Boney Maroney. And he and he was and he wrote a song for him called "She Said Yeah," which later got covered by the Rolling Stones. And uh, you know he and that's where he met Harold Batsy, and they reconnected once they once they both went to L.A. and became, uh, you know, uh, principal producers and songwriters and arrangers out there. And uh, it was during this time that also another big label that was head of uh, uh, of you know another big label that was recording a lot of stuff for New Orleans was Ace Records, which was headed by a guy named Johnny Vincent. Uh, and this and they incl- and all these artists that were recorded out of J and M Studios, I mean sorry, Cosmo Recording Studios that were that were that were ba- that were that were on the a- Ace Record label included Jimmy Clint, Frankie Ford, and Huey Piano Smith and the Clowns. And uh, I mean, there was a bunch of different musicians that recorded out of here. Uh, Bobby Mitchell, Smiley Lewis, Sugar Boy Crawford, Art Neville, um, Dr. John Mac Rebinac. I mean, there was it was there was a ton of pool, there was a huge pool of talent uh, coming out of New Orleans. But the interesting part about um, you know Jane and sorry Cosmo Recording Studios is that uh, by the '60s they actually had two studios, and uh, they had a three-track stereo machine, a two-track stereo machine, and a monotape machine, Studio A. And they basically, in Studio B, they had a two-track stereo machine, a mono machine. And in Studio C, they had a mono-only machine. And basically, that was those were the studios that, that they used during that time. And again, they got used by producers, Alan Tucson, Harold Batsy, and Wardo Clearsecree. And, uh, and basically, one of the very biggest hit songs that was recorded at the studio was Mother-in-Law by Ernie K. Doe, which was recorded at Cosmo Recording Studios. And that, I believe, was a number one hit song. And it was, and it was, and it was for the Mint label. And I believe it was the only number one record to come out of New Orleans at that time. It was the only record that, that made to number one, which is pretty crazy if you think about it. And uh, Clarence Frogman and Henry recorded there, Chris Kenner, Barbara George, Lee Dorsey, um, they all recorded in the studio, but the studio personnel was also evol- evolving because by the, by the early 1960s, they had a couple, they had some different guys playing there. And these guys included Nat Perillant per- 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 on tenor sax, still, and, there, and of course, Alvin Red Tyler was still playing sax, and Mel Lassie was still playing trumpet. And then George Davis and Roy Montrell were the guitar players. And the bass players included guys like Pete Chuck Beatty and George French. And then the drummers. Now, the principal drummer at this time in the, in the early 60s who was drumming on New Orleans included John Boudreaux, Robert French, and Smokey Johnson. Those were the main drummers at that time. But the piano players included Alan Toussaint, James Booker, and Marcel Richardson. Those were the main guys who were playing piano on a lot of these records. And you got to remember, all these specific records that were being recorded in New Orleans 
in this time were all about the piano player. So if you if if you hear me mention these names and you go back and listen to songs like I Like It Like That by Chris Kenner, Yaya by Lee Dorsey, I Know You Don't Lo- You Don't Want Me No More by uh, Barbara George, or I Know You Don't Love Me No More. When you listen to these songs, you know it's all they were all about the piano playing, and the piano playing was front and center. Well, the piano player who played on all those records was a guy named Marcel Richardson. And also James Booker and Alan Toussaint were other guys who played on a lot of these sessions. And, uh, you know, it was it was basically those those were the main guys who were playing on all of these records. And uh, in these labels, it was it was for AF, whether it was for AFO or for roulette or, you know, basically any 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 small independent label that was either from New York coming to New Orleans or in or New Orleans based label. Uh, they 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 use J, uh, Cosmo Recording Studios to record, and some of the engineers who were working out of the studio included um, Arthur Skip Goodwin, Seth David, and Bert, Bert Freelot, Freelot actually, and uh, these were the guys who were the main engineers at uh, Cosmo Recording Studios. Uh, you know, in, uh, in in New Orleans, and those were the guys who recorded all those hits that I just mentioned. And uh, now that you have a better idea for the scene in New Orleans at the time, let's talk a little bit about Tell It Like It Is and the history behind that. So just to just to just to let you know something, um, if you're wondering what label Tell It Like It Is was released on, it was released on the Parlo label, and the Parlo label is a small independent label that was owned by the people who wrote the song, and this included uh, George Davis and a guy named Wilbur Smith who performed under the stage name Lee Diamond. And they both wrote the song. And uh, it was it was co-owned by a studio musician and Alvin Ray Tyler and Warren Parker and songwriter slash producers George Davis and Lee Diamond, who wrote Tell It Like It Is. And basically um, what happened was that um, it, Diamond started writing the song and Davis thought it sounded like a hit. But then what happened was that he uh, Diamond actually got in trouble and was in, you know, with actual legal trouble and was sent to prison. And it was before he could write any lyrics to the song. So Dave has actually finished the rest of the song. And uh, Neville was the one who agreed to record it. So he went to the studio and with a, with a, with a group of studio musicians, again, this was at Cosmo Recording Studios on Rampart Street. And this included uh, D- George Davis on Barry Sachs. Emery Thomas on trumpet, Deacon John on guitar, Alvin Red Tyler on tenor sax, Willie Lee on piano, and Gentleman Jude Gardner, who played drums on the song. So June Gardner was the drummer. And what happened was that um, George Davis and uh, the other guy took the took their record to New York, and basically it was it was Davis and Warren Parker, and they were they were frustrated when they found out that. There was there wasn't any label that that they they could try to that would want to release the song, so they decided to take their their record and form a record label and release it out themselves called Parlo Enterprises, and they pressed like two two thousand singles, and they signed a distribution deal with Do- Dover Records, and what happened was that uh, th- what they did and this was probably the mistake that caused the label to go under, is that. Uh, the, their, their record company, Parlo, made a very bad decision by giving WYLD's Larry McKinley, who was a huge DJ in New Orleans, what they did is that they gave Larry McKinley 50% of the records publishing. 
So they, they, they basically gave up a portion of the publishing to McKinley. And basically they, they did this in, in, you know, in, in terms of hoping that McKinley would play Tell Like It Is a Lie. And basically what he did is that he played the hell out of that record. And uh, basically what happened was that he started playing the song and then all of a sudden other New Orleans stations and, or stations in Louisiana were also playing the record. And Dover Records reported about selling 40,000 40, singles in a single week just in New Orleans. And the song was starting to blow up. It was it was going all across the country. And it, by, 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 by 1960, late 66, early 67, it was number five. It was in the R&B charts for a while. And it got up to number two in in February of 1967 January February 1967 and in, in and it was just it just blew up big time and then it was and it was in they actually released an album called Tell It Like It Is and um, basically what happened was that you would think that was such a huge record on the, on their hands like you would think that Neville would become such a huge star and and Parlo would you know reap from the financial rewards this such a big huge hit record but at the time, you know, Parlo and D Dover were inexperienced. They were not really good at business at all. So what happened was that Dover they kept they kept basically giving distributors freebies, you know, uh, and 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 basically after it stopped being necessary, so they get they kept giving them free records, you know, to play, and and they gave away three hundred copies of the, of the of the single with for every thousand sold. And basically, Dover was left with only making two-thirds of the income they should have been making, and Parlo only making half. And as they given McKin McKinley 50% of the publishing royalties, neither record company Parlo nor distributor Dover could pay the bills they amassed from pressing, shipping, and promotion, and they had no money left to pay the taxman either. So essentially what happened was that uh, you know they 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 over they 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 gave away too many free records, and they overshot themselves basically. They you know they they gave away too many records more than what they more than what they 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 could have, and they just they couldn't they there was such a high demand for this record, but they couldn't meet the high demands because they basically gave this DJ fifty percent of the record publishing, so half a lot of that money was going to them. And basically, uh, he 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 ne Aaron Neville was left without a label and money that was due to him. So he and he, he was also in jail at the time because he apparently uh, got in trouble with the law. So he was actually in jail for a very long time. And uh, basically, um, and that's another reason why he probably recorded the song a bunch of different times after it was released, because the original label just you know he lost out to that. Um, because, uh, you know, he just couldn't really, um, you know, he couldn't really use it because the label went bankrupt. Um, you know, basically, um, the thing is, is that he, you know, he, he got in trouble. He, he, you know, he was in and out of jail and he wouldn't have another hit song for like, you know, 15, 20 years, actually. So it would be a very long time before his next hit record came out. And I think... His next hit record didn't come out until 1985. So it wasn't until he recorded um, a song with Linda Ronstadt called Don't Know Much. I think that was his next hit record, actually. So, and it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was basically, it was actually, so um, it was actually Everybody Plays a Fool. It was the cover of the main ingredient song. That was the next 
hit single, but that wasn't until 1991. So that's a long time without a hit record. And then close your eyes, you know, with Linda Ronstadt, you know, that, 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 that did okay on the adult contemporary charts. So, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was a long time. Uh, and basically he, he, he was a guest single on, on don't know much, which was, I think another song, you know, with Linda Ronstadt. So, um, you know, it was, it'd be a while before his next hit record came out. And that's all because, you know, the label that he, uh, you know, recorded on basically went bankrupt and that record, you know, it, it sold well, but it just, it just made the label go under cause they overshot themselves. And, uh, I was actually one of the last, very last hit songs I was recorded at, um, at what's at a, at Cosmo Tosses uh, studio in New Orleans. It was the very last hit record that was recorded there. And uh, along with uh, Lee Dorsey's work in The Coal Mine and uh, Holy Cow and also Barefoot by Rob Parker, another record record recorded by Wardell Krizakri, who produced it. And also um, another another huge hit that was uh, Lee Dorsey's stuff was produced by Alan Toussaint with the meters playing on it. And uh, also there were some other records that were recorded there, too. But those were the very last hits recorded at Cosmo Cross's recording studios in New Orleans. And uh, it was at the time when they were kind of hit pretty hard by the British invasion, so they couldn't really recover from that. They had really didn't have a whole lot of hits. They couldn't compete with Memphis and Muscle Shoals and Detroit and Chicago with Mo- with Motown, so they really had a hard time competing with uh, those labels. So um, that kind of wraps up the history with uh, New Orleans. And really, uh, I think New Orleans, the later success of the city, they, they owed a lot to the success in the meters of Sissy Strut and Sophisticated Sissy. Um, that, that they basically kept New Orleans going for quite a while as far as a, uh, you know, musical entity, as far as a big city with really great uh, commercial successful music was concerned. The meters did a lot to keep the city going as far as commercial success in the Billboard Hot 100 charts is concerned. And also, my apologies, <laughs> there were some dogs barking in the background the last bit of that. Um, I'm, you know, I'm place I'm recording my podcast. There are some dogs here, so th- my apologies for that. But um, so that concludes part two of episode number 147 of my 60 music podcast, the Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and if you found out some interesting facts about this the last week's songs and artists from listening to this week's episode of this podcast, you never knew anything about Tell It Like It Is. And by the way, this song did get covered by a pretty big. Uh, 80s girl band rock band called Heart they did a really you know very successful cover version of the song in the 80s and uh, if you if you found out some really cool facts about last week's song and artists and you never heard never knew anything about them before and you like to you know let me know what you think or tell me hey I, I learned a lot from listening to this episode of this podcast and I'm a millennial never knew anything any of these things before then please email me at samlcwilliamicloud.com you can also reach out to me on Instagram, iHeartOldies, and check out more of my original music at SamWilliamsMusic.net. Another thing you can check out, as per always, what I put in the description of each episode of this podcast is my EP that came out over Memorial Day weekend. Love if you guys can check that out because, you know, my music is up there and it, and it means a lot to me. These songs are so good. and love to hear what you guys think of these songs and if they touched you emotionally in any way. Um, you know, if you like the, mu- like the genre of music and you're millennial. And by the way, um, one thing I've been noticing lately is that, uh, you know, there there definitely is a place for my music nowadays because uh, Bruno Mars 
and Anderson Pack just released another song under their duo named Silk Sonic called Skate, and it's a total retro 60, uh, 70s sounding record. Not a 60s sounding record, definitely 70s, but the point I'm trying to make is that it has a retro sound, doesn't sound anything like current at all. And it and it definitely has that you know old school seventy disco vibe. Just just and they're just ten years shy of me shy of me really because really my stuff is sixty sounding and they're just ten years ahead of me. So I'm doing the same thing except mine's more retro sixty sounding. So there you have it. Um, so yeah, I mean I would really love if you can check out those songs. So link to those in the description of this episode of this podcast, and you can also check out. Um, the official, like my two interviews I did Honk, with Honk Magazine and Shout Out LA. Well, love you. You can guys read those because you'll learn a lot about me from this, from, from reading those, uh, interviews that I did. Cause I, I did, I talked a lot about myself in those interviews. And if you read those and if you, and if you learned some really cool stuff about me, you would like to meet me in person. If you're based in LA, please email me at samltbliccom Let me know if you'd like to do that. Um, also, you can check out the official music video put out, Keeper in My Back Pocket. Love that music video so much. Um, it's really, it's it, it's such a pride and joy. It was such a pride and joy for me to work on that and really do a good job with it and just, you know, really create a really solid piece of art with that music video, and I love it so much. Um, you can do that. Please let me know what you think of that music video by emailing me at com. And you can also reach out to me on Instagram at iHeartOldies, and you can check out the official Spotify and YouTube playlist for this podcast. You'll be able to find all the songs we've talked about on my, on my show so far, including some of the ones I've mentioned interview episodes. Now, if you listen to this playlist and, and, you, and, you, and you have, and, you, and they gave you some ideas for some songs I should listen to next on my podcast, and I haven't yet, please email those ideas to me at samlzwilliamicloud.com. You can also reach out to me on Instagram at iHeartOldies. And last but not least, you can check out the official Redbubble merch store for this podcast. You'll be able to find all these super cool merch items that I personally that have my own personal Millennial Throwback Machine logo, which in, which includes the catchphrase to save me end of every episode and keep on chucking tight I font with any of my podcasts in the bottom. And if you like, you know that uh, that that logo, and you like to let me know what you think of it, or just buy something from the store and support my podcast that way, please do that. Or you can let me know what you think of the logo and the price of each item in the store. You can do that by emailing me at samlcwilliamicloud.com. You can also reach out to me on Instagram at iheartoldies. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, also, don't forget about my show uh, tonight at Bar Lubitsch. Um, my set time is 9.30. There's $10 cover. So, if you're around L.A. and you'd like to come support, please do. I'd love to meet you at the show. And especially if you're a fan of listening to this podcast or my music, um, please come to my show. I really, really appreciate that. And yeah, so um, I'm Sam Williams, and thank you for joining me for this week's episode of my podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. Until next week, please keep things groovy.